If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Acts chapter 2. This is our last, our final, I don't know if it's our last ever, but it is our last in the series message in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be beginning in verse 22. We'll read a portion of this sermon that Peter preaches. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And once you find that, if you would, in honor of God and his word, let's stand together as I read this passage. How are you guys doing this morning? Is everybody here? Is everybody ready? Does everybody feel good? There's a lot, there's a lot going on, but we're going we're gonna to center ourselves in God's word here this morning. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. Well, as we talked about last week, we, we have finished kind of the narrative of the book of Acts, and we're now in a little season that as I experience kind of a long, a long uh, journey or a long series, I personally like to kind of take a step back, like this is the end of the school year right now. And so, and for my, my uh, second oldest son, this is time for graduation. And uh, for some reason or another, every graduation, every significant graduation event is taking place within a four-day period this year because every you couldn't have like the basketball season got moved to the spring and so playoffs we're doing playoffs we did prom last night we had a graduation party yesterday as well we have another graduation party we are doing everything graduation is, is happening on this Thursday and then we have a sixth grade promotion it's like everything is happening all in one week so in the Hill household we are we're running around like our hair is on fire. So I hope that's not you. I mean, I hope your hair is not on fire, uh, literally or figuratively, either way. But this is the end of the year, and it's time to, like, take, you take kind of stock, right? And I, we, we've kind of, because we have kids, and we live our lives on the academic calendar. So this is like the end of the year. As much as December might be the end of the year for some, this is the end of the year for us. It's time to take stock. And so we, when we come to the end of something significant, we always want to take stock. We want to ask questions. You know, what are, some, what are some high points, some low points? What are some lessons learned? And as we talked about last week, as we come out of this, this book of Acts, it would be easy for us to just, chapter 28, Paul ends in Rome, we answer those questions and we move on. But this is a good chance for us to ask a question that we do as we read our Bibles. And we talked last week a little bit about when we read our Bibles, we want to read our Bibles, and we want to ask the question, what is the author's intended meaning? What, what does it mean? What does this passage mean? What did it mean then? What was the author trying to do? What is God trying to say? But there's also another task, a secondary task, when we come to the Word of God, and that is to ask the question, what has stood out to me? What are the things, what are the words that kind of come off the page in a way that they didn't the last time I read this passage? And when we do this, what we're doing is we're trying to pay attention to the way that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives as we read God's Word. And in my experience and the experience of many Christians, the idea that the Holy Spirit would work by bringing certain things to your attention, to my attention. And we might imagine that's different for each person in this room because God has us each at different seasons of our lives in Christ and at different emphases in our lives in Christ that we're going through different things like we're raising kids, we're sending them out. There are different things that stand out to us. There are different things that stand out to me than when the kids were little or when we were just married or maybe there be different things that stand out to me about the book of Acts um, as I'm in as I'm in my older years or retiring or something like that, there's different ideas, different things that stand out. And so for me, last week we talked about one thing that stood out to me was this idea of the supporting cast in Acts. And I encouraged you, and in life groups this last week, 
I, we urged each other to kind of identify who is a person, a supporting cast person in the book of Acts that we might aspire to or that, that stood out to us this time around. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at really the second thing that has stood out to me this time around in the book of Acts. Like I said, my, the, this Acts was the first book that I ever studied as a believer. I was on a missions trip. I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school. We were down in Mexico, Mexico City, and then we went on the Yucatan Peninsula. But the whole time, every day we would read a different chapter, and we would go through these kind of basic Bible study methods. What are key words? What are things that stood out? What is God trying to say? What is the author trying to say? But as I've grown, I mean, there's been a lot of time since that. I mean, you know, that was only 10 years ago, that freshman in high school, you know, because I'm in my mid-20s. Not quite, like double that, okay? But this time around, and after some education, and after, there's different things that stand out. And one of the things that stood out to me as I was working through this book, and I want to end with this. I want to end our series in Acts with this. And what stood out to me is in Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, And we talked about that word witness. That word witness is the word where we get our word martyr from, a a martyrus. You will be my martyrus. You will be the people who testify about me. That's what witnesses do. Witnesses don't just stand on street corners and look around for accidents. I mean, that's when I first heard the word, let's go witnessing, I was like, what are we going to do? We're just going to stand around and look for stuff? Like, I I behold that. It's It's not about seeing it's, also, it's about seeing, but it's also about retelling that story. It's about testifying. That what do witnesses do in a courtroom? They get into the witness stand and they give testimony. And one of the things for me that as I've read the book of Acts is I've just been paying attention to this idea. What does it mean for someone to bear witness of Jesus? What does it mean for these earliest followers of Jesus in this day, in the first century, after hearing from Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, what did they think was testifying about him? What did they say? What was their attitude? What did they do? What did they say? What were the sort of things that they did? And I want us, I want us to think about this because Really, at the end of today, what I want to do is I want to remind us this, of this, that the earliest followers of Jesus simply thought that one of the most important things that they expected every follower of Jesus to really be able to do and to want to do is to simply say, Jesus has done something for me. Jesus has done something, and it has affected my life. And to be able to say, this is what Jesus has done for me. Not every every believer was a preacher. Not every believer was an evangelist. But among the earliest followers of Jesus, every believer thought it was important and that they would think that if you went around the body of Christ, every believer would say, this, Jesus has done blank for me. Jesus has done something for me. They didn't have to do a sermon. They didn't have to be an evangelist. They simply had to testify, to say something about Jesus. And this is my challenge to us as a community, and as we look at this last, this last sermon in the book of Acts, is to simply ask the question, if someone were to ask you, what has Jesus done for you? What would you say? And again, some of us might be we might be a little bit hesitant because, like, I'm not a theologian. I don't know if I can give the right answer. I got news for you. Whatever Jesus has done for you is the right answer. I don't care if it sounds great in a theology classroom. I don't care if it sounds great in church or not. I don't care. As long as we are able to bear witness of Jesus, Jesus has done something for you. What is it? And it might sound different all across. I, don't, I would want, uh, to be quite honest, I wouldn't want everybody parroting out the same answer to that question. This isn't a, it's not a theological quiz. It's a personal reflection. 
What has Jesus done for me? What attracted me to Jesus? Why have I put my faith in Jesus? You will be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will testify. And so today what I want to do is I want to just look at this sermon of Peter and think about some of the other places in the, new, in the book of Acts where believers stand up and they bear witness. What's their attitude? What do they say? What do they do? How do they do it? And then to ask the question, and then for me to actually to, to, to model a little bit of why have I followed Jesus? Not as a theological answer, but just for me personally, why have I why have I given my life to Jesus? So let's go. You guys ready? I feel, like this is a ch- I feel like this is a challenging message because as I was preparing it, I'm like, I gotta preach to myself too because we live in a day and age where it, testimony about Jesus, we might not think that other people want to hear it. But the truth is, people want to hear it. People are at a place right now in our society, in our culture, where they have questions and they want to hear someone who has a conviction about the truth of who God is that would be willing to share it. All right, so here's, my, here's the first thing as we think about bearing witness, testifying, okay? And this is something, we're going to get to the sermon in a second, but one thing I want to do, actually just flip over really quickly to Acts chapter 4, really quickly to Acts chapter 4, and I, I want us to look at, there's one, one thing outside of this passage that is significant that I want us to, um, to take a look at. It's 411, and this is, what I, this is what I want to start with. When the earliest followers of Jesus, when they bear witness about Jesus, what are they trying to do? What is their aim? What, is, what are they trying to accomplish? Okay, What is their aim when they testify about who Jesus is? And the answer to that is, They are aiming for exclusive allegiance to Jesus. Listen to what it says in Acts 4.11. In Acts 4.11, it says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I want, I, I want us to hear that with our ears from the 21st century, but I also want us to hear this with the ears of the 1st century, because here's the deal. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, there were a lot of gods out there. There were, there were the, Roman, the Greek gods that the Romans adopted, and then there were all these local deities. And wherever you lived, you would kind of accumulate your patron guardian gods. If you were, if you were a sailor, you might worship the god of the sea and make, make, uh, make payment, but you also wanted to appease also the god the God, if you lived in Egypt, the God Isis who provided food and, and overflowed the Nile and that made it fertile and you would want to, because you wanted food and you wanted a good, good weather and so you would appease various gods. And as you traveled around, you would understand that there were other gods in these various locations. The God of the sun, the God of, of the night, the God of, of the water, of the river. And if I were, if, I, if part of my livelihood depended upon something from one of those areas, I would, want to, I would appease that God. If I wanted a good love life, I would appease the God Diana or Artemis, and I lived in Ephesus. But here's the idea. In the ancient world, you would gather gods, and you would have on your mantle, you would have multiple gods that you, it's polytheism, right? And so, and you, for every occasion, there was an appropriate God that you would appease, And one of the things that we see in the book of Acts, one of the strange things that we see in the book of Acts is that the earliest followers of Jesus were not just preaching, they weren't testifying about Jesus as an add-on to the mantle. Jesus was not just, just another God among the many. In the ancient world, and this is something that that stands out among the early Jesus movement, they were preaching for conversion. They weren't preaching for addition. They were preaching exchange. Give it all up in favor of Jesus, the one true representative of God. 
Jesus who is enthroned over all things. Jesus, one and only. Clear off the mantle, and it's just Jesus. And I think this is one thing, just for us today, there is this tendency to, even in our own lives, that, well, I've got this thing going on, I've got this thing going on, this thing going on, and Jesus is just one more thing on the mantle. And what we're doing, what we see them doing, is, and what Peter says in this sermon, is he says this, that this is not just one of the stones in the building. Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the very cornerstone, the stone that you start building around. The first stone laid. Sometimes it's, uh, Jesus is called the capstone, which if you're building an arch, the last stone that goes in that holds the whole thing together is the capstone. But Jesus is also described as the cornerstone, the first stone set by which all the dimensions of the building come off of. Jesus, the one and only. You can only have one cornerstone. There's only one capstone. And this is something that in some ways upsets the sensibilities of the ancient world, but it also at the same time gives you a sense of what the earliest followers of Jesus thought about Jesus. He was not just one among many. He was one and only. And one of the things that as we come and as we gather here, and this, this might, sound, might sound intolerant, it might, look, I'm happy to talk with anybody about, about anything and about Jesus, but ultimately in my life, it is Jesus the one and only. And I, I am constantly doing diagnostics to make sure that nothing else is encroaching upon him or that somewhere in my life that I'm somehow making him subordinate to something else. And so our first thing to note about testifying about Jesus is the first thing that the earliest followers of Jesus, their, their aim was Jesus, not in addition, but Jesus in exchange for all other powers and authorities in the world. It is Jesus bearing witness and Jesus the one and only. It is not a it is not just one of many. You guys with me on this? And I know probably if you're here this morning, you're like, yeah, that, that sounds right. But as we go out these doors, that idea is not going to be in vogue. But here's the deal. It wasn't popular in the first century either. Like, welcome, welcome to the earliest followers of Jesus. They are testifying about the exclusivity of Jesus in a culture that did not like that idea. And so here we are. Not, not that much has changed in 2,000 years, all right? So that's, that's their aim, exclusive allegiance to Jesus the Messiah, all right? Now, what's interesting, as, as, as much as that is, as much as that sounds pretty, pretty wooden, pretty, uh, pretty tight, like that there's not a lot of wiggle room in there, the second thing that we see about their approach, their aim is exclusivity, but their approach, as we read in the book of Acts, is amazingly flexible, have you guys noticed this as we read through the book of Acts this year? How flexible it was that whenever somebody got up to testify about who Jesus was, how flexible they were to their audience. Let me give you a couple of examples. On Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit led to a sermon, like everybody, everybody was, was, was filled with the Spirit and people who were watching thought, well, all these people are drunk. Like, what do you say what do you say when, when, you're, when you're gathering, everybody's like, all you people are weird and you all look drunk. Peter gets up and he says, oh, well, that, if that can be explained through the prophet Joel. And it's the only time you have a sermon in the book of Acts that is some kind of ex exegesis on, on this passage from Joel chapter 2. It's flexible. When Paul goes to Athens, it's the discovery of this obscure inscription to an unknown God that Paul then takes a whole different track, flexible, because he says, look, you guys are looking for God. You want God so badly, you're willing to worship anything you don't even know about. And Paul seizes upon that opportunity flexibly, right? He doesn't go with Joel 2. He goes, he quotes this, this inscription with the Ethiopian eunuch 
Philip scans the Isaiah scroll because that's what's available. It's flexible. Whatever is at hand, whatever the need of the moment is, that is what is used to testify, to bear witness. When the proconsul Sergius Paulus in Acts 13, Jim preached on this, a very pragmatic Roman, what did Paul do? He appealed to the power and the practicality of God and God's power. Different, different than Acts 2, different than Acts chapter 9, different, flexible, flexible to the Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Paul knew that keeping the Torah was impossible. So it's, it's almost impossible to do in Jerusalem, but if you live outside of Jerusalem and you're trying to keep Torah, so Paul goes into this, this diaspora synagogue and he, talk, and he basically says, look, keeping Torah is not only hard, it's impossible. He seizes upon their own understanding, their own need, flexibly. In Caesarea, Acts chapter 10, Peter, would you read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius, the Roman centurion? It is the simplest sermon. It starts with John the Baptist. Well, you heard about John the Baptist, and then here's Jesus, and Jesus does a bunch of miracles, and then he suffers and dies and resurrects, and he, before he can get to resurrection, everybody's speaking in tongues because they've, they've received the Holy Spirit. It's like the simplest thing in the world. But what is the powerful thing in that sermon is hardly anything that Peter said. It was the fact that he, as a Jew, would walk into the house of a Gentile. It was his action. And he seized upon the moment to bridge whatever the need was in order to bear witness. Here's the thing. As much as it is about the exclusivity of Jesus, what we see in the book of Acts is just an amazing willingness to be flexible with how you say it. And this is, this is me. This is, this is me. Because in, in the evangelical world, there are a number of organizations that will say, if you don't present the gospel this way exactly, like something's wrong with you, and you're, letting, you're corrupting the gospel. And I'm like, have you guys read the book of Acts? I mean, anyone who says when you preach the gospel, it has to look this way or sound this way, has clearly not read their New Testament. They might have read the book of Romans, and that's awesome. That's one way. When you read the rest of your New Testament, there are all kinds of metaphors, all kinds of metaphors, from slavery to freedom, from death to new life, from estrangement to reconciliation. There's all kinds of metaphors. Pick one that fits your situation. Follow the example of the earliest followers of Jesus. And this is why for me, look, I don't, I, I get, look, I, I spent enough time in school, I know enough theology, I know the idea. When you, when you testify, you do not have to give a systematic theology textbook. As a matter of fact, it's better if you don't. It's better if you simply say, and now look, it's not bad to know systematic theology. I've spent my whole life learning that and, and teaching that. I spent 15 years teaching that. But what I'm saying is that when you have someone flesh and blood sitting before you, ask them questions. What is their need? What do they need to hear? And start with that. There will be plenty of time for discipleship to come. You don't have to get it all out in the same way. Think about when you first heard the gospel. Did you understand everything? No. As you grew into your faith, you began to understand more. We don't dump systematic theology on people every time we give the gospel. What we do is we do what the people in the book of Acts did, which is what is the need and how can I meet the need of this moment and introduce Jesus into this? Are you guys with me? I mean, I know I'm getting kind of pumped up about this, but I, I have heard, I've heard a lot about this idea of if, if you're going to give the gospel, it's got to look like this. What is the gospel? Look, the gospel is that God's saving power is in Jesus. You pick the metaphor and go for it. God has entrusted you with bearing witness because you don't want to know why? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
And we have to imagine that the Holy Spirit will offer you direction in those moments. We can prepare, but it's not a well-rehearsed sermon that people are waiting to hear. What they want to hear is why Jesus matters to you. All right. I know I'm, I am getting pumped up. I'm getting very, I'm getting excited. And so I'm, I'm not going to apologize, but bear with me. All right. Okay. And I think here's, here's a couple of things. And as we, as we think about this, as we think about testifying, here are a number of needs that, as I think about our world today, questions that people have that would be a great jumping off point into the gospel. I think one, one particular question is, is there anything good that can come from this pandemic? You don't think the saving power of Jesus can be brought into that question? How about this? Simply that there is a hunger for freedom in our society. Freedom from addiction, freedom from enslavement to sin. Why do so many people do what they don't want to do? Turn on the news, everybody. The idea that there is freedom from slavery, that Jesus would purchase our freedom on the cross. I mean, these are, these are natural jumping off points. Is anybody around disenchanted with authority? Why are people so divided? And to ask the question, does God look down and see division? How does God see a means of bridging division in our world? Three guesses, the first two don't count, right? Jesus! Unifying in Jesus, that in Jesus he's made one new humanity. You think about racial tension, that was not foreign in the ancient world. That's why Peter, that's why God says, Peter, you gotta go to this dirty Gentile Roman centurion's house and you've gotta give him the greatest gift of all time. You gotta go show compassion on your enemy. And if your enemy sees you coming, to show them compassion, imagine what that might do. Why are so many people in pursuit of so much wealth, experience, pleasure? Why is there this quest for satisfaction? Bring Jesus into that question. Why is there so much suffering in this world? And the idea that God would willfully enter into our suffering in the person of his son. There are so many questions today. That as we listen, as we hear other people, as we ask them, as we think about this, that we might offer them Jesus in a unique way that we might be able to bridge that gap for them. Michael Green says this, at all events, if we are to learn from the early Christians, we must discover the appropriate way into the real situation of those who are seeking help and relate the good news to it. We must find our way into their situation and relate the good news to it. So, the aim of the earliest followers of Jesus, as they testified, was exclusive allegiance to Jesus. But the means by which they did it? Flexible. Flexible. Don't get those, don't get those uh, switched, right? Only one way to preach it, but he's just one of many. That's not the way we do it, Right? Jesus is the one and only. There are lots of ways to explain that. All right. Now, what else did they do? What else did they do? Some content, just some content, okay? The first thing about testifying, okay, the first thing about testifying, when the earliest followers of Jesus, when they talk about, when they, when they give the message, when they talk, when they bear witness of Jesus, they didn't talk about a philosophy of life they didn't give a system of morals. What they did was they tried their best to present the person of Jesus. And I know this might sound, it might sound, you're like, no duh, Pastor Craig, they gave him Jesus. But in some ways, like, we get, we get wrapped up around the idea that there's a philosophy out there, or a philosophy of life, or a worldview. Like, look, I would just say, event, worldviews will come, morals will come, what we give to people is the person of Jesus. When God wanted to impress upon the world who he was, the way he revealed himself was not a system of thought or a worldview, it was a person. And I would simply say this, as you 
testify, as I testify, your best starting point is, well, have you ever heard about Jesus? Have you ever read about Jesus? Have you ever looked at the life of Jesus? Look, everything, it, everything else will eventually come flooding in, right? But Jesus, Jesus is our best foot forward. What did they say about Jesus? Look at um, Acts 2.24, back this, this very short section. Acts 2.24 is uh, Acts 2.24, uh, or 2.25, well, 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 16. And Peter earlier has already quoted from Joel chapter 2. And he's going to quote later on from Psalm 110. Why? Because for Peter, and when Peter is talking about who Jesus is, Peter and the earliest followers of Jesus see Jesus as a fulfillment. That Jesus is fulfilling what has come before. That the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. And so one of the things that you can do is to simply say that, look, this has been something that, that followers of Jesus and those who believe in God have been saying for years and years. And to your Jewish friends, you might say, well, look at Psalm 16 or look at Joel chapter 2 or look at Psalm 110, that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God. And this would be a way to speak about who Jesus is. Jesus is a fulfillment. Second thing you could say is simply this, and this might, again, this is, classifies as one of those don't blow our minds, Pastor Craig. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a man. Sometimes, sometimes we get so caught up in the divinity of Jesus and that his divinity, that he's a judge and that he's up there, he's out there, that we make Jesus inaccessible to people. But we have to remember Jesus was a man. When God wanted to present himself, reveal himself, he sent a man, a man who was weak like we are a man who suffered like we do, a man who has feelings, who feels the way we do, is not non-impassioned, a man who is subject to the weaknesses and temptations that we are subject to. He ate, he slept, he wept, he longed, he wrestled with God, his Father, in prayer. He was misunderstood. He gave love. He received help. Jesus is a man, and sometimes when we testify about him, what people need to know is that Jesus is accessible. He's a man, just like us. He knows who you are. He has suffered. He walks in your suffering with you. Jesus is a man. Look at, um, look at Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God. This is the starting point for Peter. Jesus was a man, a man attested to you by God. Now, he doesn't end there because the second thing, another thing you could say about Jesus is probably something that we're all very familiar with. We've done our apologetics class, and that is that Jesus is God. We don't leave it that he is simply a man. He's not only a man, he's also God, that Jesus is a bridge between humanity and divinity. And that there's this big chasm, and he's an anchor on the humanity side, but he's also an anchor on the divinity side. And any bridge that doesn't reach both sides of the river is no bridge. It's folly. Jesus is the bridge that is firmly anchored in both shores. And he is God. Look at 236, down the page. Peter starts with Jesus was a man attested to us by God, but in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter begins with the assertion of Jesus' humanity, but matches that with a firm declaration in his deity. Which do I focus on, God or man? Here's the deal, flexibility. Read, your, read the room, read the audience. It's okay to do that. And just because you focus maybe on one, on one occasion doesn't mean you're a heretic. Verse 
I, I mean, that sounds strange to say, but there are some people, well, you didn't really do that ortho. It's like, look, I'm talking to somebody. Talk to me afterwards, right? Read the room, read the situation, because the earliest followers of Jesus, in the moment, they were giving what the audience needed to hear in order to come to an exclusive faith in Jesus. The rest of it could come in later. Why do you think the Apostle Paul wrote so many letters? To instruct after the fact. But that initial testification, I can't get away from that word. I'm making stuff up as I go along. Testifying, bearing witness, okay? As we testify, we look at our audience and we ask the questions that we imagine they're asking and we give them the truth about Jesus. You could focus on one or the other or try to bridge both of those but the, you can focus on the approachability of Jesus the man or the authority of Jesus who's seated on the throne. Which, which does your audience need to hear about? That Jesus is approachable or that Jesus has authority and that he's coming as the judge at the end of all time? Look, not everybody needs both of those and one of those might turn someone off. Start with one of them. Does that make sense? And again, I'm, this is, I'm not giving systematic theology. These are both true. I'm talking practicality. How do we testify? We do it flexibly. All right. How else? What else should we say? We say that, we say that Jesus is a fulfillment. We say that Jesus is a man. We say that Jesus is God. We also say that Jesus is crucified. Something that maybe is a little bit harder to talk about, but Jesus suffered, Jesus died, but as we talk about that, we also say that Jesus gave his life for a reason, as a sacrifice. Jesus was put to shame, but that the death of Jesus has somehow put us right with God. Look at 223, back in our passage, 223. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That there is some purpose in the death of Jesus. That there's ultimately some purpose, that yes, it was, it was sinful men that put Jesus to death, but there was something that God had in mind through it. Now, how do you reconcile? I don't know. Peter doesn't do that here. He doesn't talk about, you know, he doesn't talk about Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, because obviously Paul would have, Peter would have been, I don't know, whatever they would have been. He doesn't go into that. He simply states it. The pieces will fall as they will. But Jesus was crucified. But we would also say, of course, that Jesus is risen. Jesus broke the power of death. There's an empty tomb. Death that equalizing, pervasive, you can't escape it, death and taxes. Maybe Jesus could do something about taxes too. But death, the power of death has been conquered. The pain, the shame, the uncertainty of the end of your life, Jesus has spoken into. The mystery and the finality of death has been overcome. And Peter says, we are all witnesses of this. Look at 2.32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We are all testifying that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Yes, he was a man. Yes, he is God. Yes, he has been crucified. Yes, he has been, he has been raised. Jesus is alive. Maybe that's the most important thing you can say about Jesus, is that he was alive and he currently is alive because he has conquered what no one else has been able to conquer. And the thing that gives the most angst to everyone, the end of life, death, Jesus has conquered it. One final thing that we can say about Jesus that he was a man, that he is God, that he was crucified, that he's risen. But one other thing that we see, and this might be an important thing to, to say, and that is this, that Jesus 
reigns. Kanye West was right. Jesus is king. You can Google it later. Okay. Jesus is king. Jesus has authority. Jesus has been raised up and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has the authority to say what is, is, and what is not, is not. Jesus has the authority to say you ought to do this and you ought not to do that, and you do this at your own peril. Jesus is king, and kings get to Kings get to speak in to the laws that allow for human thriving. And Jesus has that authority. And it's not wrong as we bear witness of of Jesus to the people around us to say, Jesus has opinions about things. Jesus thinks that this sort of behavior is is right, this sort of behavior is wrong, and that 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 sort of that we can take that sort of lifestyle, those sorts of instructions, and that the earliest followers of Jesus would call their lifestyle the way. The way of Jesus. And so as we think about this, as we communicate about Jesus, that Jesus is king. Look at 2.33. 2.33, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, but that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. He is the ultimate authority. He sits on that throne. And one of the most important things that we might be able to say about Jesus, why is Jesus enabled to sit on that throne? Why is Jesus enabled to sit on that throne? And here is the basic answer. I think the answer that we, that we can give. Why? What gives Jesus the authority to say what is, is, and what is not, is not? Why? Why is Jesus given that authority? Why is Jesus authorized to be king? And the reason is, is because Jesus has come and he has demonstrated what self-sacrificial love is. That is what gives him the authority to sit on that throne. He has modeled the self-giving and the self-emptying love of God. God's love is self-emptying. We see it all through Scripture. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will self-empty for you. And Jesus comes down, who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but empties himself. Self-sacrificial love. And self-sacrificial love of God has the ultimate authority. We as humans, and I will speak for all of us in the entire world and all of human history, we have spurned this idea that the ultimate authority is self-sacrificial love. We see kings and dictators and presidents gather power and exercise power and flex political power and flex military power. We have seen that throughout all of human history. And yet we see in Jesus that the most, in, the one indestructible thing in our entire universe is self-emptying love. It will never be defeated. It is undefeated. And it will never be defeated. And anyone who says that there's a power greater than that has not looked hard enough at what it means to be the recipient of self-emptying love. Why do you think we celebrate Memorial Day? Why is it so powerful to think about people who give the last measure of full devotion? Because that self-emptying love endures beyond the force that killed them. Why do we know that? Because of Jesus. The Romans are long gone, everybody. The Roman, that Roman cross is long gone. Those nails have rusted. That has turned to dust. That, that is long gone. The power of Rome. You think Nero is remembered? He's remembered in, in, in history books as a madman. How is Jesus remembered? As the greatest of all time. 
Why? Self-emptying love. Self-emptying love. If you want to leave a legacy on this world, it will not be through military might. It will not be through political power. And I would say beware of anyone who wants to leave a legacy using those two things. You will leave a legacy if you pour out your life for others. And we learn that because of Jesus. We learn that because of Jesus. Undefeated, most powerful thing in the world, indestructible, is self-emptying love. Michael Green says, the only indestructible thing in the whole cosmos is self-abandoning love. Unless we are touched by it, respond to it, and begin to model it, we are ultimately on the road to destruction. Sometimes in our faith, other forms of power, this triumphalism comes, comes marching in on top of Jesus, and we have to do a diagnostic and say, no, that is not the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? And as we bear witness to a world of who Jesus is, we testify about who Jesus is, we remind ourselves of what the way of Jesus is. So my question, my question to you this morning is simply this. What, the mo- we can talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. We can talk about the flexibility of approach when you talk to people. We can talk about the content, and there's great content in here. And maybe you focus on one or more of these things as you talk and as you bear witness. But ultimately, what is the most powerful thing you can do? And consider this. There are lots of words that can be used. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will evangelize. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will teach. It doesn't say either of those things. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will simply testify. What does it mean to testify? What has Jesus done for you? Simple question, why did you respond to him? Not the theological answer, but just what in your heart was welled up when you heard the offer of Jesus? For me, as a 14-year-old kid, the first time I heard the gospel, grew up Roman Catholic. I think for me, when, when the offer of salvation came, it was the first time I'd ever heard that God wanted a personal relationship with me that I wasn't just one of a billion people on the planet, that God looked down and he's like, Craig, Craig. He saw me. He knew who I was. And he had dispatched people to tell me. I think for me as a 14-year-old kid, I was like, oh my gosh. There's somebody outside of my family that loves me. And as, the more I got involved in church, I realized, yeah, there's, there's all these families, and they all seem to like me. They love me. They would invite me over. And for me, there was, it was, there was a, part of it was this sense of belonging. It was a place to belong. But it was also just this idea that God, and I don't know how I knew it, but I knew it, that God was looking down and saying, I want you, Craig. I got a plan for you. That for me it was purpose, that there was purpose that came from that. Look, you're not going to find this in any theology textbook. This is my story. And your story, you're not going to find it in a theology textbook. You're going to tell it because it matters to you. It's why you came to faith. For me, another piece of it was simply this personally that it enlivened me. It gave me life. It gave me energy towards, I got to tell you this, I was not a very good student. Not a very good student growing up. When I came to faith, though, I got curious in ev- about everything, everything. And a PhD later, my wife's like, stop it. But look, I just got curious about everything. I got curious about history. I got curious about psychology. I got curious about everything. For me, it enlivened me, this idea. For, for some reason, Jesus brought things into their proper categories. And I think even today, like why do I follow Jesus today? Those things are true, but there's also, like I think that following Jesus presents a way to raise a family. I think that following Jesus is the best way to to build a society, to be honest. 
I think that the sort of, the sort of values, I think, look, we only know about human rights because of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Like all the, the, the do-gooders out there that, aren't, that don't love Jesus, they're living on borrowed principles. It's the Bible that teaches that every human being was created in the image of God. Find that elsewhere in human history. It's all stratification elsewhere in human history. It's the Bible that says every human being is created in God's image. That's the, that's the basis for basic human rights. I think it's the best way to live. So yeah, and a lot of things come together. So these are the sorts of things that I would say to someone who's asking, well, why do you love Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Why don't you go just do your own thing? Well, look, there's a number of reasons, and here are a few. Here's just one. And if somebody were to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? You don't have to spit out my answer. What's your answer? And my challenge to us today is simply to do a little reflecting at the end of a long series in the book of Acts, at the end of our senior year. I'm just kidding. At the end of our years, as we reflect, why do I follow Jesus? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we come today just to affirm Jesus is king. He's king of my life. He's king of our lives. He's king of this place. Father, we pray that the kingship and authority of Jesus would spread, that his reputation would spread in our community, and it would be because we are part of that. We thank you, Father, that this is not about a well-rehearsed speech for every occasion. This is simply about telling our story about why Jesus matters to us. Our discovery of Jesus. And we thank you that you've brought us. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you have brought us to a point of faith. God, for anybody who's here that has not come to a point of faith, and even just hearing this, that they might have felt the presence of your spirit to say, I want to follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would have a conversation. And certainly, if you're here and that's you, come talk to me after the service. But Father, we thank you that you would entrust us to bear witness of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you would give to us through your son, Jesus. And we continue wanting and endeavoring to walk in the way of your Son, Jesus. Father, help us to do that. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.